Hey, good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here, and I wanted to take a minute and just address all the campuses and, and announce our Christmas series, just introduce you to what we're gonna be doing over the Christmas series. And so, you know, if you remember back to the Nehemiah series, we uh, started the series by praying. Remember how Nehemiah prayed? And I said, hey, we wanna be a church that prays. And one of the things I asked you to pray for was to list some people that maybe to your knowledge, didn't know Christ, didn't have a relationship with God. And so to just begin to pray for them. Well, guess what? Uh, we're in the Christmas season and we have our Christmas Eve service coming up in just a few weeks. And it's gonna be a great service and we're gonna share the gospel. And one of the things I love about our culture is people, for whatever reason, think they should go to church on Christmas. And I think that's, uh, I think that's fantastic. And so we're gonna equip you with some invite cards. And I really wanna encourage you, take that list of people that you've been praying for and take a, as many invite cards to our Christmas Eve services you will give away and invite them out to the Christmas Eve service. We're gonna share the gospel. It's gonna be a candlelighting service. It's gonna be a great service and we would love for them to come. And so I just wanted to put that in the back of your mind. Be praying in these next couple of weeks. Grab some invite cards and invite the people you've been praying for to come out and join us for worship on Christmas Eve. Secondly, I wanna to announce to you our, our Christmas series. Really, really excited about this series. Uh, and you know, it's interesting how each of the gospel writers approaches the Christmas story differently. But one of the ways that's unique, one of the things that's unique to the Gospel of Matthew is he actually starts the Christmas story with a genealogy. And a lot of times when we're reading the Christmas story, we just read through that real quickly. But uh, it's really actually quite interesting. I mean, if you and I went on Ancestry.com and we found out that we had someone famous or someone of nobility in our family tree, we would certainly shout that from the rooftops, let everybody know uh, the descent, where we came from. But and Matthew has some of those, of course. He's got the patriarchs and he's got David. Uh, but you know, there's some characters buried in the genealogy that I don't think if they were in our family tree, we would want everyone to know about that. And so myself and the pastors, as we began to pray about the Christmas series, we were asking the question, why are some of these characters, characters like Bathsheba, Rahab, why are they in the genealogy of Jesus? And we concluded that it's all about grace. God in his grace uses broken people to exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's so encouraging to me. And I hope that's encouraging to you that God uses people just like you and I, just like Rahab, just like Bathsheba, to be a part of what God is doing on the planet until the day that our faith becomes sight. And so I hope that you're encouraged as we unpack some of these characters out of the genealogy of the birth of Christ in this new series we're doing over the, over the month of December, The Unlikely Family Tree. Good morning, church. Hey, I'm Andrew, the lead pastor here at Coastal Church in Chesapeake, and it's so good to be with you this morning. Hey, once you're going to get out your notes and also going to get out your Bible, digital or analog. Hey, even if you're watching online today, get out your notes, uh, get out your Bible. I'm going to turn to Matthew chapter 1. And as you just heard Pastor Sean say, we are starting a brand new series today. And while you're turning in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, while you're turning there, by show of hands, how many of you have one of those streaming services? Okay, I'm talking about Netflix, Disney+, Plus, Paramount, Pure Flix, if you're into that as well. How many of you guys have one of those streaming services by show of hands? Okay, I think most people do nowadays. And right now, if you have one of those streaming services, when you first start to watch a TV show, almost no matter which streaming service it is, you now have the option to hit this little button right here called the skip 
intro button. Now, how many of you guys have done that before? You've seen that. You just hit that button, okay? You know, when, when it comes to when our family, we're watching maybe something together as a family, uh, we will take a moment, okay, and when that comes up, a lot of times my kids will ask me to go in and hit that skip intro button. And a lot of times when they do that, I start to go into one of my older man talks. You know what I'm talking about? Pastor Brian knows what I'm talking about. But it's the type of thing where I say, man, you kids have it so easy nowadays. Okay, back in my day, when we would watch TV, we had to wait weeks for our next episode to come on. Not only that, when it did come on, we had to sit through all the commercials, all the recaps, and we had to watch the intro again. There was no option to hit that skip intro button. And sometimes when I say things like that, my daughter, my oldest daughter would say to me, Dad, it sounds like your childhood was so sad, (laughs) which is highly offensive, but I get it. And all the time they're asking me to hit that skip intro button. But church, okay, more than any of our streaming services, how many of you know that when it comes to really getting to know someone, really getting to know something, that introductions are important. And right now in our culture, in our world, too many times we want to skip past some things and instead of taking some time to really slow down a little bit more to get to know someone, slow down a little more to actually listen and get to know who someone is or what something is really all about. Look, in this new series, Unlikely Family Tree, we're going to start with the intro to Jesus' story in Matthew chapter 1. And church, right out of the gate, I want to challenge you to look a little closer at this story, to listen a little deeper to this story. Because so many times we skip past the intro, but God has something for us, even in the introduction to Jesus' story. Look, the story of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, is something that many of you have probably heard hundreds of times at this point. Some of you, it may even be the very first time that you're hearing about Jesus' birth. But no matter where you are on the spectrum, I want to challenge you to not skip the intro and see what it is that God has for us. And here in Matthew's gospel, don't get too excited, but the intro to Jesus' story, it begins with a genealogy. Each week, we're going to start here in Matthew chapter 1. In fact, let me give you a little preview about where we're going to be going each week in this series. Each week, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1, and this week, we're going to look at the story of Tamar. Then the following week, the story of Rahab, and then also Bathsheba, and then the the story, the person in the story that everyone's probably really familiar with, we're going to be looking at Mary the very last week of the series. And as Pastor Brian mentioned a little bit earlier, just a heads up, parents, oftentimes, look, we do not skip the challenging passages in Scripture. We don't skip the tough passages in the Bible. Look, God included these stories in the Bible to at times show us just how messed up life can be, just how messed up our own sin nature can be, and how it can lead us to a point of even destruction or even dominate our lives and dominate our decisions. But I'm telling you, church, no matter how great the sin, our Savior is greater. Come on, we're going to see what we just sang about, that even though our sin is great, man, his love is so much greater. No matter how messed up, our God is mighty to save. So you may think your family history is challenging, but the family of Jesus, man, the thread that God has been working since the beginning, we're going to see just how deep his grace goes to save people. 
And one more thing, and yes, I'm still in, in the introduction, and no, you can't skip it. One more thing, okay? Usually in the first part of this series, look, I'm going to give a lot of context, a lot of background, especially since we're going to start off in Matthew chapter 1 each week. So I'm probably going to refer back to this week, number one, and you won't get all of this information each week. In fact, just a little behind the scenes pastor preparation. Anytime I do a message, like I'm thinking about something to do, something to feel, and something to know. And this week might be a little more of something to know, but don't miss the challenge that I believe God has, us, has for us at the end. And look, if you feel something, if you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if you feel the challenge from God's word, don't miss it. Don't stay where you are if God's calling you to take a step with him today. So we're going to get into it. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Matthew starts off his gospel with this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, not Salmon, Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, who we know as Bathsheba. Church, today I want to share with you two things to not skip past in this intro. But first, let me take a moment and pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that as we go through this series, you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. God, I pray that your kingdom will come. Your will will be done right here in our lives. Lord, I know that you want to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ right here in this place. But Lord, I know for that to happen, your kingdom needs to come. Lord, not just generally out there, but right here, Lord, in our hearts, in our minds, Lord, in the very actions that we're taking, Lord, in our homes, God, you want your kingdom to come and your will to be done right here in our lives. God, would you let your kingdom come and your will be done? Well, Lord, would you use us? Would you teach us? God, would you not leave us where we are? In fact, God, I'm praying for the person today who maybe they've been in a place for a while or they've been stuck in there. God, I pray that you would mess with them. God, I pray that you would lead them to the rock that's higher than I. I pray that Jesus would be lifted up today. Lord, help us, Lord, to take a step closer to you. God, help us to see the world the way in the way that you see it. God, we want to follow you today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, church, again, today I want to share with you two things to not skip past in this intro. And the very first thing, okay, write this down. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Man, look back at verse 1. Matthew starts off his gospel. He says, look, this book, okay? He says, this is the book 
of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew says that this book, first and foremost, that he is writing right out the gate, it is about one person. It is about Jesus Christ. And side note, church, okay? When it comes to the story, the book of your life, when it comes to the story that you're writing with your life, who is your life all about? Is it about you? Is it about what you want to accomplish or the fame you want to attain? Is it all about your kids? Is it all about you? Or is it about glorifying God? It's about bringing glory to his name and surrendering your life to him. Man, right out the gate, Matthew says that this book that he's writing, it's about Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you a couple Bible nerd things today, okay? Look, Matthew is one of the four books known as the Synoptic Gospels in the Bible. Along with Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's one of what's called the Synoptic Gospels that actually focuses on the life and the ministry of Jesus. Look, these are actually eyewitness accounts to what Jesus actually did and what he actually said. All of them were recorded and written down and even circulated within the first 20 to 50 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. And look, if you know anything about, especially like first century or earlier recorded history, if you had anything recorded within the first millennia, it was actually, it was actually noted to be very historically accurate. So these gospels, these eyewitness accounts were written within the first 25 to 50 years of Jesus ascending to heaven, which is just another reason why that we can trust what the Bible was said, because the people were still alive who actually saw Jesus and heard Jesus do and say these things. But look, even if that were not the case, this is the word of God. Now we can trust what the Bible says. And in Matthew's eyewitness account, He says about, as he's talking about the life and death of Jesus, Matthew uses the name Jesus in his gospel about 150 times. Now, some people know that that's because Matthew, man, had this personal relationship with Jesus. So he uses the name Jesus primarily 150 times in his gospel because he was so personal with Jesus. But also he uses the name Christ 17 times in his gospel. So he uses the name Jesus 150 times, he uses the name Christ 17 times in his gospel. But church, there's only one time in his entire gospel when he uses the two together, Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. This is so important. In the name that we commonly call Jesus, Jesus Christ, Matthew only uses that combination one time as he starts this letter. He's making a declaration here. Man, how many of you know that the name Jesus actually means God saves? And how many of you know that the name Christ, it wasn't his last name or even a family name. In fact, it's a title. The name Christ means anointed one. In fact, it was the Greek way of saying Messiah. So right out the gate, Matthew here is making a declaration with this letter that he's writing with this eyewitness account. He's saying that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one that saves. He is the promised Messiah. That Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That he is the one that actually brings salvation to the people. 
Come on, right out the gate. Like, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Matthew makes this declaration right here that he is the only one that can save. That even though our sin was great, man, this Savior is so much greater. Come on, church. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Do you have a relationship with the one where it says that for God so loved the world that he so loved you? That he sent his one and only son to die on the cross to pay the price for your sins. Do you have the relationship with the one that even though he knows the deepest, darkest part of you that nobody else knows about, he says, I still want you. I want to save you. Man, Matthew begins this letter by saying, look, this is the one that people have been looking for. This is the anointed one. This is the Messiah. This is the God who saves. This is the savior of the world. There's no need to look any further. Jesus is right here. But if this eyewitness declaration weren't good enough, Matthew gives Jesus his genealogy and his family connections. Look, church, this intro shows us that Jesus is the Christ. He is the savior of the world, but it also shows us this. Write this down, okay? It shows that there is purpose in this genealogy, and there's also purpose in these family connections. Look, it shows there's actually purpose here. These aren't just some random names that God put down in his word, uh, but there's actually purpose and family connections right here in this genealogy. Now, uh, just a quick note, okay? Like back in the first century, there was no Ancestry.com. There was no 23andMe. There was no DNA test that you could do to prove any type of family connections. So what people would do in the first century and beyond that, and a little bit earlier than that, they were, if there was some type of either claim to a name or property or some type of inheritance, they had to record the family history and that record had to be kept. So if there was any claim to a name or property or possession or some type of inheritance, you had to be able to trace the family line back to wherever that promise was made or wherever that inheritance was promised, you had to be able to trace that line back. We're going to look closely at this over the next few weeks, but this week I want you to pay attention here, especially to the family connections that Matthew first points out here in this genealogy of Jesus. In verse 1, look back at verse 1. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Then he says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you go back and read passages like Genesis chapter 12, you're going to see where God told Abraham, look, through your family line, every nation, every every ethnic group is going to be blessed because of you. And if you read like 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll see that God gives this promise to King David that someone is going to sit on his throne forever. And so here, Matthew notes that the people of God, man, he's all, they've always been looking for and referencing this humble king that will come, that will forever sit on the throne of David, was a reference to the Messiah. And again, Matthew's making this direct connection to this humble king, to this blessing that will be for every nation that would establish his throne forever. Man, Matthew's making some strong claims here that would have been shocking to some, but then the next part is also very surprising. You know, just like today, how it's still pretty common where a wife will take the last name of her husband or when she marries into the family, it's usually the the father's name or the family name that's carried on. 
And here it is recorded that usually it's the father's name that's listed in genealogies. So it's very strange here that Matthew would actually include several women in this passage, but it's even more surprising that he would include the very first woman he lists in the name of Tamar. In fact, look back at verse 2. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Again, he's tracing back the family line all the way to this promise that came through Abraham. Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Don't miss this, church. Write this down, number two. Tamar is part of God's redemptive plan. She's part of the redemptive plan that God has established. Look, this is part of the message that, as Pastor Brian mentioned, is probably rated PG, uh, if we could rate a message here. And look, church, look, the Bible, it is God's word. It is everything we need for teaching and correcting and training and righteousness so all of us may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is what we need for righteousness and godliness in this life. Look, reading God's word is what we need to develop as authentic followers of Jesus Christ. This is what we need. But at times, okay, and just a little bit of note about Bible interpretation. At times, the Bible is what we call prescriptive, which means it's actually saying, look, this is what you need to do. This is the way you need to think. This is an actual step that you need to take. Look, it's actually prescribing what we need to do. But at times, the Bible is descriptive, which it's describing what happened. And it's even describing things that maybe that's, that isn't the way that they should have, that they should have happened. In fact, it's even showing us just how messed up things can happen or how messed up things can be. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew takes time to mention Tamar in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look, if you're anything like me, you probably need a bit of a refresher as to who Tamar is and what her story is. So go ahead and turn over to Genesis chapter 38. If you have a digital Bible, you can scroll all the way back there. Paper Bible is pretty easy. Just flip back to the beginning of the Bible. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 38. And I'm going to tell you right out the gate that her story is messy. But Tamar is part of God's redemptive plan. Now, we're going to start in verse 1. Now, when I sent the notes in just a few weeks ago, okay, I think I started in verse 6. We're going to start in verse 1, okay? So you won't see verses 1 through 5 on the screen, uh, but I'm going to start in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 38. So again, pull out your Bible, make sure you turn there and follow along as I read. As I read this church, I'm going to give some commentary on it, and I'm going to show you, man, how God was even working in this messy story to bring about his redemptive plan. Genesis chapter 38 Verse 1. By the way, Merry Christmas, okay? It happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers. And listen to this. He turned aside, okay? He turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name 
Shelah. Not Sheila, Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. So again, can you see the, the tracing of the genealogy happening here? There was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, the same Judah that Matthew is talking about at the beginning of Jesus' story. Judah here, where again, it's important to know like what the context was that was happening in this moment. Look, Judah was supposed to be following the one and only God. It was through his family line that God had made this incredible covenant that all nations were going to be blessed, that they were supposed to be setting the example, following the Lord, and leading others to do the same. But what did Judah do? In fact, where we pick up here in this story, he's already been doing some sinful things. He sells his brother into slavery. And here you see him even turning away from his family. And then he goes into the land of Canaan, to the Canaanites. And he begins to engage in even more sinful behavior. He turns aside to an Adulamite named Hira. In fact, this guy would actually become a close friend, but Hira is not a follower of Yahweh. He is not a follower of the Lord. In fact, every time you see that name Hira mentioned, just know that Judah's about to get into some trouble. And Judah, he begins to go after this relationship with this Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. He pursued her. And so many times that the Lord has stressed in his word that he didn't want the people of God to marry with the Canaanite people. And again, it was never about ethnicity. He didn't want the people of God to marry people who were following other gods. In fact, he would challenge them because he knew that, that, that their love for them would actually pull their hearts toward all these false gods that the people of Canaan worshiped. And the people of Canaan were known for their many gods that they followed. They were known for their wicked and even evil behavior that was abusive and completely opposite of what the Lord had said and had declared in his word. And so this story, again, is even highlighted because Judah was turning away from everything God had told him to do, and he was even about to deeply connect his life to enter into a relationship with someone that was going to lead him further and further and further away from the Lord. You know, church, sometimes like people think I'm just repeating things, okay, saying the same things over and over again. But I only do it whenever the Bible does it. And here again in this story, man, it is a reminder, it is a warning for the people who are in relationship with Jesus to be careful about going to these deep relationships, even marrying somebody who does not have a relationship with Christ. Because they're going to pull you further and further away from what God wants to do in you and through you. And let me just say, that is not what the Lord wants for you. We're going to see that as Judah enters into this relationship with someone who's so far from God, it only leads to more and more brokenness in him and even around him. So again, let me just warn you, look, if you are single right now, if you are dating someone and that person is far from God, that's not God's best for you. And may not even be what God wants for you. So Judah marries the daughter of Shua, and she gives birth to three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And look how the story continues in verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, 
go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so that not, so that no, no offspring could be given to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Church, write this down two more things. The story of Tamar, it shows us that God is serious about sin. But the story of Tamar also shows us that God is patient with us. I mean, God is serious about sin, but he's also so patient with us. Look, the first son who married Tamar in the Bible, the Bible just simply labels this dude as wicked. In the original language, look, that word wicked means evil, reprobate, even depraved. Look, we don't even know all the things that he was doing, but to say that he was sinful apparently was just the beginning. Again, it's so interesting. Like his name, again, in the original language, the name Ur actually means protector. But Ur was doing the opposite of that. He was wicked. He was evil. He was abusive to the point where God himself put him to death. Look, church, God is serious about sin. But then the second brother, Onan, it was the custom. In fact, it was the honorable thing to do. In fact, it was called Levrite Law where if your brother died and then um, there's another brother in the family, another family member who wasn't married, for them to actually take the, the widowed wife and marry her, to be able to provide for her, to be able to protect her, or even to be able to carry on the family line so those kids could have the same benefits of the firstborn child. But Onan was so wicked that he did not want that to happen. He was only focused on his own needs, his own wants. And and the Bible says what he did was actually wicked in the sight of the Lord because his heart was filled with sin. His heart was filled with selfishness. In fact, his story, the text indicates that he wanted all the pleasures of sex without the actual responsibility. Look, God designed sex to be a good thing, even a great thing between a husband and a wife. But look, when it comes to real love, real love involves real responsibilities. Look, Onan should have cared for his wife. He should have cherished her heart. And of course, even glorified God in all of this. But instead, his heart was sinful and his actions were selfish, only wanting the pleasure and ignoring the responsibility. Church, isn't that the way that so many in our culture right now treat relationships and sex? Instead of the loving responsibility and the covenant commitment of marriage, people step outside of God's design. And when we step outside of God's design, the Bible calls that sin. And sin only leads to more and more of a place of brokenness in us and around us. And so many people want the pleasures without the responsibility. Church, listen to me. If you are engaging in pornography right now, whether you're single or married, it is outside of God's design. It's wanting the pleasures without the responsibilities of actually waiting on the Lord and following his design. If you are lusting after someone who is not your spouse, 
that is wanting the pleasures without the responsibilities of actually waiting on the Lord and following his design. If you are engaging in sexual activity, heterosexual or homosexual, it is wanting the pleasure without the responsibilities, waiting on the Lord and following his design. Again, this story shows us that God is serious about sin. And the wickedness will not go without punishment. Church, if you haven't heard me say it already, God is so serious about the sin that's in our lives. Sometimes we think that what we're doing when it's sinful or even wicked, that it isn't really that big of a deal. But sin on every level is wicked in the sight of the Lord. On every level, our sin has consequences. And it's the same thing today. Look, God is so patient with us. And he calls us. He provides grace for us. He provides mercy for us. He's waiting on people to turn back to him, to repent to him, and show them that, look, in Christ there is no condemnation. There's freedom when you submit that thing to him, whatever it is. Like, he is so patient with us. But there's going to be a time when we have turned so far away from him, that's going to be hard to find that pathway back to repentance. That's why the scriptures even say, look, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Look, for the unbeliever, this is realizing that, yes, we are sinners and sin only causes more and more brokenness in us. But man, it is pointing to your need to surrender to Christ today. Look, you're trying to fix that brokenness with all these other things, but there's only one way. That's through Jesus. For the believer, yes, you have heaven But don't miss out on God's blessings right now. This is a reminder that if you are living in sin, look, don't stay there. Because you're bringing on God's discipline in your life. And look, you've heard me say before, look, God's not mad at you if you are in Christ. He's not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. But he he disciplines those that he loves. Even though he does that, I'm telling you, church, he would rather bless you. So right now, are you living in this place of sin? Man, God wants you to turn back to him. Man, this story shows that, yes, God is so serious about it, but he's also so patient with us. And look how it continues in verse 11. It says, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For Judah actually feared that he would die. He was looking at what has happened so far with his oldest son, his next oldest son, and something with Tamar. Seems like there's some sort of connection where his sons are dying. So he feared, look, if I actually did this lever right law, if I did what was right again, something's going to happen. I'm going to lose my other son. Not actually looking at the sin that they were doing, even the sin that Judah himself was producing more and more in himself and even around him. So Judah actually kicks her out. He says, go back to your father's house. He kicks her out by pushing her further back into her Canaanite practices. Instead of again confessing and returning returning to the Lord and even leading others to do the same. And in verse 12, it says, In the course of the time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah to the sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira. There's that Hira guy again. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to share his sheep. Now, pause right there for a second, okay? Is that still up there? Can you see in there where it says that he was going to share his sheep? And you see that he went to Timnah 
um, to his sheep sharers. Can you see that there? You guys see that in there? Okay. Does anybody know what that means? I mean, when I first read it, and guys, this is one of those times, like I've read this story many times. This is one of the times when I, when I read it and I thought, man, isn't this a cute little thing he's going to do? He's has some sheep. He's going to go take his sheep. He's going to share his little sheep and probably make some sweaters, maybe some turtlenecks. Like it's sweater weather right now in Israel. I want to make these cool sweaters and celebrating the goodness of the Lord, little cute sheep, sharing the sheep. But as, as I was studying this passage a little bit more this week and looking more even at Canaanite culture, look, going to Timnah and sharing your sheep is not what it sounds like. Apparently going to Timnah and sharing your sheep was kind of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Timnah stays in Timnah. Like apparently this was a huge Canaanite festival where they would actually celebrate, yes, like their bountiful goodness and the sheep that they had. And they would actually share some sheep, but it was actually a season for great revelry and wildness and drunkenness and sexual activity when they would go do this festival of sharing the sheep. So even in this, like, it's showing that Judah is taking more and more steps further away from what God had called him to do. He wasn't doing something good. He was about to engage in even wilder behavior that would pull him even further from God. So verse 13, it says, And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil. Wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given him, given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock and said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? Now, remember this part, okay? She said, your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. I'll skip down to verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And listen to Judah's response. Bring her out and let her be burned. Man, you want to talk about some hypocrisy in this moment. But also, can you see how this pattern of sin has been building in his life. He started by selling his brother into jealousy over his brother Joseph, selling his brother into slavery, turning away from his family, turning away from the things of God, engaging in a culture that was far from God, leaning into it, going to festivals that celebrated this culture that was far from God, moving further and way, further and further away from God. And can you see how the pattern of sin and brokenness in his life is literally affecting other people? And you see the same thing with Tamar. Man, my heart breaks for her. And she's been in these abusive relationships with these men who are supposed to be loving leaders who have treated her so poorly. 
And instead of them even showing her and leading her to the one true living God, they actually even forced her deeper into her Canaanite roots. In fact, what she ended up doing here, the Canaanites had something opposite of Leveret Law, where if a wife became widowed, she was actually supposed to go to her father-in-law to try to get married or even to try to have a child. So she actually went further and further into the way the Canaanites led. And in fact, one of the gods that they had was a fertility god. And they would have these cult prostitutes that would dress up that way, hoping that somehow their gods would bless them. And you can see the pattern of sin that has caused so much brokenness in them and around them. Verse 25, it says that she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law. She said, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Then in verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet letter on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which in the original language, the name Perez means breach. Could you imagine if you were named after the way that you were born? Like, hello, C-section, how are you? (laughs) Hello, home birth, like, what's up? And then afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. Look, two more things about Tamar's story. Her story shows us that God is working in the interruptions. But it also shows us that God can turn a mess into a masterpiece. Church, it's so interesting to note that with the story, look, it's actually between two chunks of Joseph's story. You know Joseph's story from the pit to the palace, like this one of the stories that we cherish so much in the Bible. In fact, if you go back and read chapter 37, it's right when, again, Joseph being sold into slavery, and his story immediately picks up with Potiphar's, Potiphar's wife in, verse, in chapter 39. So here in chapter 38, it almost seems like an interruption in Joseph's story. But even in this interruption, look, God is working. In the middle of Joseph's story, God is working, and he's even working behind the scenes. And here God is actually going to establish his covenant line with Judah. This covenant line is where God would show the world from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22 that his redemption plan is working and that it will be continued, that it is going to persevere. Look, even in the midst of sinful circumstances, God's program, it will not be thwarted, it will not be stopped. Look, he never accepts or condones sin, and God himself, he never, ever sins, but he still uses sin, even in his sovereignty, to accomplish his kingdom plan. Look, church's story is filled with so much brokenness. And we will see Tamar's child named Perez actually continue the covenant line that leads to Christ. Like fast forward to Ruth chapter four, verse 18. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. 
Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered, what did I say? Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. It was interesting to note that Boaz himself would actually do with Ruth, with great integrity and great honor to the Lord, what Onan failed to do. When Tamar asked that question to Judah, there began to be a change in him. That marks a moment of change. Church, look, this whole story, okay, it is messy, but it shows that God is serious about sin, but yet he's so patient with us. It shows that he is working in the interruptions, but any mess so God can turn into a masterpiece. Look, as our worship team comes back to the stage, I wanted to end today by simply asking you a couple of questions. Again, like I said earlier, when, when Tamar said to Judah, please identify these things, please identify whose these are, when she poses that question to him with the staff, the ring, and the cord, those were things that actually identified who Judah were.